0: Hello, my name is Ashish Gadiali. I am a activist in residence at the Sarah Parker Redmond Centre, and I am joined today by Shabaka Hutchings. Shabaka is a leading light of the UK jazz scene, a member of Sons of Kemet, The Comet is Coming, Shabaka and the Ancestors, with the Comet is Coming, he was the winner of the Mercury Music Prize in 2016 with Channel The Spirits and a nominee with The Sons of Kemet with Your Queen is a Reptile in 2018. The latest album out that you've been working on, if I'm right, is Black to the Future. Yes. From Sons of Kemet, featuring artists including Koji Radical and Leanne Le have Shabaka, thanks a lot for joining us. Hey,
1: man, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So I'm going to start off with a very long-winded question. I'm going to tell you the story of how I ended up getting in touch with your manager, Rachel, because this has been nearly two years in the pipeline. I remember in like May or early June 2019, with Sons of Kemet, you were doing a gig at Somerset House. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I've been talking on climate at a community event in Devon, where I'm based. I talk about race and climate, race and ecology. And I remember getting on the train, just thinking, this is like a hard, this is a hard slog. It's really hard to get this story across to people that are thinking about the environmental crisis, you know, from a particular prism. And I remember just getting to your gig and just being in another world. Obviously, the music, but also, you know, like just the kind of euphoria of being in the crowd and like singing that we're not going to take this country back. We're going to take this country forward. Or the euphoria of that moment that you put. Up the slide of Boris Johnson's quote about pickaninnies, and you know, know. it just created so much like heat on the floor. And then you said this thing that like knocked me out of it. So you're talking about unity, and you were talking about the land, and you were talking about this land, the nation of Britain, and something that predated the church.
1: Mm.
0: I remember waking up the next morning and just thinking, what was he talking about actually? Yeah. Yeah. And so I got in touch with your agent and we started planning an interview, which was going to happen at different stages for different publications, but I'm very happy is now happening during my residency at UCL's Sarah Parker Redmond Centre. It seems a very fitting platform to have this conversation. So long intro, that's the question. What, What were you talking about? What is the unity of Britain that predate the church? Well... I wouldn't
1: say the unity. Well, it's actually the opposite of that. It's the kind of disunity of Britain that predates the church, because in some way, the codification that the church brought was enforced. The church was a system that actually strove to eliminate all other factions of belief, you know, so like the the kind of traditional paganism. The beliefs that are closer to actually African ontologies, the Catholic Church, you know, throughout hundreds of years of struggle, managed to wipe out even the knowledge of those indigenous forms of Britain. So actually, it's the multiplicity that was in Britain that's been erased. And it goes to a a kind of point that I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is to do with Black History Month or Black History in general, in that it's not so much that we need the Black history, it's like we need better white history to realize that our histories are actually joining ways that aren't really known because of forces that have chosen to make unity where actually the you know from certain angles from certain ways of looking at history there's just more multiplicity than we would realize even looking at the, you know factions of of Christianity like say gnostics who believe that they were it could be a direct link between the believer and the supreme source of energy that you didn't need the intermediary of necessarily the prophet or the priest or the preacher that you can actually get a one-to-one And they were really at kind of odds with the catholic church who really believed that you need to go between you need someone who can interpret the message the gnostics message was closer to traditional african ontologies that would suggest that actually the source of energy and power actually stems from within and then is contained within you know them to have a universal connection between all beings, whereas the the general ontology of the Catholic Church would suggest that the word is given to a third party, a prophet, you know, or the word is given to an intermediary who then dispels it to the masses. Um, So it's just that that's what I was trying to allude to, the fact that actually there are ways of interpreting our relationship to the land, to this land, Britain, that actually are unknown to the native inhabitants And what what does it mean to live under empire? You know, and like what people are given is a real, like a kind of fun children's story that is all about waving flags and having a great time and ruling the waves. Whereas to live under empire is to live under propaganda, the propaganda of empire. You know, by its definition, an empire is a place that actually propels it, perpetuates itself um through propaganda you know through hearing a myth of its greatness and that myth has to actually exclude stories that don't subscribe to the form of greatness that it would like everyone to believe
0: so for you that connection between the church and empire is really clear how did you get to the point where the church was the thing that you were identifying as the kind of root of that
1: well, I wasn't really identifying the church specifically as the root of it. I was really kind of bringing the, the idea of the church as an example of the fact that there are different ways of seeing the culture of Britain. But the way that we see it is stemmed from the church, which is the, has been the dominant force you know, with, from, from this land. Like this is, yeah, it's, it's been a force historically that has shaped the way that the nation has seen its narrative and its relation to others.
0: At what point in your development and journey did that become apparent to you? Hmm. That's an interesting
1: one, actually. Um, definitely reading Marimba Annie's book, Urugu, where she does go into in great depth into actually what the history of the church was in forming the mental procedures that end up in colonial mystics. And I read that in 2019 and reread it in the, during the lockdown. I was going to church when I was younger in Barbados, maybe up to the age of, with the age where I could say I didn't want to go anymore. But while I was going, I did read a lot of it. You know, I kind of engrossed myself in it just in terms of seeing what the thing is. And that's always been really religion, spirituality in general has been kind of a topic that has been fascinating to me for a long time. Because it really is to do with the way that people see reality, you know, how people perceive their relationship as individuals to a collective and this is actually the root of it all. You know, how do you consider, you know, on a cosmological level, your position as an individual in relation to the external, you know, whether that external is another in terms of another culture or another as in nature. And it's not universal how we make these relations. So in many cultures, the relationship between human and nature is one where nature is the subject and man is the object. You know, and you have to almost like prostrate yourself before nature, which is the dominant force. Whereas in the West, by and large, in the, in the kind of dominant manifestations of the culture, nature is seen as the object which is acted upon. And humans are seen as the subject. And our job in the dominant paradigm of the West is to control and utilise nature for the purpose of profit.
0: So we've started off talking about that through the prism of of a relationship with the land of Britain, but then you're also talking about, when you talk about the church, you're talking about your experience in Barbados. So how does that picture that you're describing become more complex in terms of the geographies of your own life, London, Birmingham, Barbados, have those different locations fed into this understanding in in different ways? Well, it's just trying to find a, a place.
1: You know, trying to find a way of of seeing my, my relationship to what's going on around me. And it definitely wasn't coming from the church. I like using parables as metaphors and as myths and, and seeing what I can gain from them. So I thought a lot about, for instance, the story of Adam and Eve. You know, especially going on in my life, traveling through all these different locations. For me, I I keep coming back to that story as a real interesting, almost like prophetic tale of like where we're at. As in, you know, you're able to access knowledge, but with knowledge comes the certainty of death and the harshness of the progression towards death, actually. So if you kind of consider that knowledge is almost synonymous with progress. So to eat of the proverbial fruit of knowledge is to actually be able to progress, but to progress not towards enlightenment or vitality or life. It's to progress towards destruction, and that for me is like the foundational story of the West's paradigm. In that there is more and more knowledge, and there is greater understanding of the way that the world and the functions of nature are structured. But after all is said and done, it progresses into a state of climate collapse where it can actually sustain ourselves so it's summed up in that one parable and for me this is the important thing about these religious texts is that they do contain elements of not necessarily truth but elements of consideration that can teach us about the mythical forms of like what we're doing and how we've come to be in the state that we're in
0: what does the geography of your life like, how does that how does that influence your understanding of those forms i don't know i mean it's like
1: What it means to move, to be dislocated, as in to start life in, say, England, then move to Barbados, then move back to England, then spend a lot of time in South Africa, is to not have a clear sense of continuity. And I don't mean that in necessarily a derogatory way, as in I'm not at odds to find my position. It just means that there may be certain things that are sometimes taken for granted in terms of cultural forms that I just haven't you know if I'm like honest and if I'm not talking in an academic or you know a way I don't see myself from anywhere you know um but I wouldn't say I'm from Barbados because I've just not spent enough time there and all this and uh, I you know I would say I'm British in some senses because you know the only way we can have agency is to actually be a part of the place that we are in but then you know, I'm British to a certain degree because I am also Barbadian and I am also African it's just a kind of murky Relation, So I think with that murkiness comes a disregard for certain forms and structures, psychological forms and structures that are maybe culturally taken as a given. And I think that that dislocation has allowed me to look at certain aspects of society that are not necessarily unquestioned, but sometimes just taken with more weight than they need to be afforded or should be afforded and kind of just see them as like weird you know and then try to find artistic ways of portraying that that weirdness. so for instance you know calling the album your queen is a reptile as a way of bringing that conversation in terms of who are our leaders and actually why do we afford them the, the privilege of our just gaze
0: i mean yeah at a discursive level it is a brilliant album title I'd love to really understand that journey that you're describing and the way that that movement between places created a kind of iconoclastic approach to form. Like, I'd love to understand that in terms of your musical idiom. I mean, when did you start, when did you first pick up an instrument?
1: Right, in Barbados when I was nine. And it was just that someone had instruments in class and, I, you know, who wants to play the record? And I just put my hand up, you know, and it just progressed from there.
0: Can you tell me the story of that progression?
1: Yeah, so it's like I started the clarinet, you know, my mum was able to actually send me some music lessons in addition to what the school was providing and kind of got me a decent instrument because she's a teacher. So she was able to get a school's discount. And I'm an only child, so I just spent a lot of time on the instrument playing along to the radio, but then playing for various kind of calypso bands, reggae bands. And because I started in Barbados, it had that kind of colonial education, you know, um, thing, which meant that you did the Associated Board of Music classical exams, you know, once a year. Uh, and adjudicators will come down from England and, and judge everybody. So I did all of those exams before moving to England at 16. And this is, I guess, the first point of reflection. I knew I was never going to be a classical musician, even though I was playing the clarinet. I just liked playing the clarinet, and the clarinet was an instrument of the classical idiom. So it's like I did my exams, but they weren't the most important thing. Coming to England, I realised that actually people who do... You know, I did grade 8 by the time I was like 14. Just because I liked chipping away at problems, you know, problems to do with the instrument that I was studying. Um, I was subsequently realized that most people who actually dive into this area of study singularize the process. So it's like if you are a classical musician who's doing those exams, you are classical. Like right? you do classic, you immerse yourself in that culture. And that's how you categorize yourself. You don't necessarily play jazz. Whereas for me, it was just, a thing to do you know it didn't mean that I actually saw myself as that which meant that I could then go and, and in the nighttime play in a reggae band play calypso music you know listen to hip-hop be starting delving into trying to learn about jazz music and that brings me to the point when I, was, I moved to England and I met Soweto Kintz in Pine and started just hanging out with Soweto a lot in Birmingham going to jam sessions learning about the American form of jazz music yeah and just trying to find my way through it. I went to Guildhall when I was 19. I did my A-levels and I went to Guildhall and did a classical music degree on the clarinet. Again, not because I wanted to be a classical musician. Like me, it was just, it was never even a thought to play being a classical musician. But it was just because I just wanted to learn that instrument. I was kind of obsessed with the clarinet. Throughout that course, there were so many, you know, this is a whole other area in terms of the academy and that European cultural hegemony and hierarchy in relation to other forms. But... There were all these forces that were trying to get me off the course or kind of put false barriers between what it was to be a jazz musician and what it was to be a classical musician. So even I remember having a conversation with the head of Woodbin and and Brass at the time who said, you know, what are you going to do about this jazz problem? You know, because, you know, you can't play jazz music and classical music and that's actually a statement that I really thought about for a long time about like what does it mean to say that jazz music will destroy not actually yeah the word specifically where jazz music will destroy your classical chops so then what are you going to do about this problem you know so if you kind of actually break it down so jazz music isn't jazz music the jazz course is reflective of jazz music jazz music is reflective of the culture that jazz music comes from. And that culture is coming from the Black community of America. So what that person was saying they understood it or not was that what are you going to do with your proximity to Black culture, which is going to destroy or damage what we're trying to cultivate in you as a course that's perpetuating white cultural, European musical values. And I was like thats you know why well, I didn't say it to him because I didn't think that I it was only on reflection that I thought about these, but at the time it was just kind of was shocking. Um, I thought that that's a really weird and specific way of seeing cultural form, the relation between cultural forms as in one is out to destroy the other. You know, and it's not the only way of seeing forms, you know, like relations can be mutually beneficial. But to see the other as something that is coming to destroy you is something that's very specifically, you know, British slash European, at least in this particular period of time. And that summed up a lot of things in the society for me. It's like I'm looking, I'm thinking, well, if that's what he slash they think about even just a music form, what does it mean when actually the cultural ever comes in a physical body? You know, that must be a real problem. <laughs> so yeah, I, I kind of finished the course. I didn't stop playing the classical course. What I actually told them was all you have to do is judge my exams at the end of every year. And if I don't do well enough, then you can't actually kick me off and I'll just join the jazz course. It's not a problem. They didn't kick me off because actually I did enough practice to get really good results. And actually their music isn't that hard. It just takes practice. You know, a lot of it's to do with mechanism. So if you spend enough time getting those motor functions of your fingers down, then the emotional aspect will be there. So I did well and, you know, I kind of finished the course. Then I kind of left the classical world apart from specific projects. So I was a part of the BBC New Generation Artist Scheme where they said, you know, you can do whatever you want to do the BBC and the first thing I was saying was I want to write a piece for an orchestra and I hadn't had any training to write for orchestra but I just thought you know it's just one of those things I don't see any big mystique about this form this cultural form called the orchestra that's supposed to be the pinnacle of the kind of musical achievement so I was like I'll write for it even though I've got no training in it and I've had kind of certain things like this though writing for string quartet writing for orchestra writing for brass group um just because I just think You know, it's one of my goals is to just break down these mystiques of cultural forms that are supposed to be so complex and complicated and revered. And actually say it's not more complex than other music. It's just a different vocabulary that you can learn and not necessarily, you know, with superhuman effort. So in my life, outside of doing those things, I was just playing as much music as possible. So free improvisation, electronic music, jazz, reggae stuff. And then it's all kind of condensed itself down into the three main groups that I do now, which is Sunday so Kemet, The Comet's Coming, and Shabakini Ancestors. The last of which is a group that is a collaboration between myself and South African musicians, because I've I spent quite a number of years going back and forwards between Britain and South Africa.
0: Is having three different groups that you play with important for this kind of movement between you know this dislocation that you're talking about?
1: In retrospect, it probably is, but actually at the time of forming these groups, I didn't form them for the intellectual purpose of you know remedying the dislocation. You know it, they worked, so we continued them, and this has been actually the, the practice throughout my whole musical life. If it works, you continue it, and these are the bands that actually resonated from an artistic level and they resonated with audiences so we just kept them going and they've managed to just grow organically but what I have found throughout the years in playing in these kind of different manifestations is that the music is about interpersonal relationships you know like what you hear as a listener is the sonic representation of these relations between myself and others and they all just feed into each other so me spending a lot of time you know in the studio or on tour with Sons of Kemet affects the way that I see the relationship between myself and the comet is coming musically and otherwise you know and I think that that brings a a different type of energy to it that wouldn't be there if I was specialized in one group then when I go and play with the South African musicians that brings a whole other area even just in terms of the stuff that we talk about the stuff that we talk about and the conversations we have, uh, the times we have as social beings, that informs the music, you know, and in general, in terms of the titles of the albums and the themes behind the albums, they don't stem from abstract ideas that we think would be cool to put on an album cover. It just stems from the stuff that we are talking about when we get together to kind of play or rehearse or to just hang out. It's, It's just better to have broader relationships. And I think, you know, musically and just generally socially, Again, if we look back to the idea of the cultural of a coming to destroy, if you're looking at actually the kind of varying of cultural relationships as being something that is, you know, just ultimately beneficial, but you might have to actually search for that benefit, that the benefit might be subtle and it might be something that you've got to work for when it actually puts a whole different gist, uh, a different tinge on immersing yourself in just different cultural kind of ways of being musically and otherwise
0: tell me more about south africa how did the south africa connection come about for you
1: initially it's because my girlfriend was south african and we were doing a long distance we started seeing each other when she was studying at soas you know so for like a year we were together there and then she moved back to south africa to start a phd so then she was spending like half the time in south africa slash Swaziland. Islands. Uh, like six months in South Africa, because that's what I was about, six months in England. So when she was in South Africa, I would just go over, spend two, three months at a time, you know, once or twice a year. And that happened for like two to three years. So I just found myself in South Africa, hanging out, seeing the musical, what was happening in the musical community, and just further understanding what the place is, because it, it's a complex place. And actually, it gets more complex the more you're there. Or at least from my perspective, it's that the more I've been there, the more I don't know, the more murky the relations. I think that when you first have ideas of South Africa, in terms of you understand its history from a basic level, I mean, you know, there is apartheid, there is an uneven society. There's this idea of, I don't know, like for me, you know, before spending time in South Africa, there was an idea of just struggle. You know, that's that's all I could envision of the country. All, all I had in my head was the struggle and maybe some musical forms, like a kind of very basic level idea of the politics. But I didn't know what that looked like on the ground. Like, actually, what does it mean when that history that you can read in a textbook or see on a TV documentary, what does it mean when you're actually there in front of human beings for whom this history is reality, who they've got to actually deal with the ramifications of living within the society for better or worse. And for instance, in somewhere like Johannesburg, I feel like it's, yeah, it's complex. There's a feeling of acknowledgement of the situation, but also, you know, like the struggle to actually, as large communities, to try to uplift themselves from the situation. And I'm talking on a kind of broad time span scale. But then there's also that interpersonal level where you see your neighbour as a person, you know, where that is actually the ultimate aim to to respond to your neighbour, you know, as a neighbour. And that's maybe the complexity that I, I hadn't really appreciated that. After all the struggle, after all the historical kind of narratives, then there is still, when you see a person, when you're in front of a person as one human being to another, how do you treat them, actually? And that's the end product, like, how are you going to react to your neighbour? And just the ways that I've seen various people just react, it's just been real, like, transformative in that it's possible to view someone outside of the prism of race, without discounting race as a part of the equation of what comprises the hierarchical boundaries that maybe separates you if you're looking at it from that dimension.
0: Mm, amazing. So how's that reflected in, you know, you were observing what was going on musically there, you know, like what what is going on in South Africa musically?
1: Loads of stuff. <laughs> Just loads of, loads of creative musicians, you know. Like that's the first thing I realised when I went there, that there's a whole world of creative music. That I just had no idea about whatsoever. People in the jazz scene, So you know, people are actually maybe now are more well known. So Dizo so, Macatini, like Mandela Mlangeni, a real great producer called Cardon Spokes, who also goes by name Shane Walker electronic musician and jazz bassist and then this whole underground electronic scene people like Spook Matumbo these names I hadn't heard before going there and you know subsequently years to come that they have become more uh, a lot more well known or at least in, in the circles that I'm in but going there it was just like how have I just not heard about all this stuff and actually it made me think about the limitations of the scene that I'm in in terms of thinking that I know what's happening in music and realizing that the world is a larger place and actually that's a good metaphor for kind of everything realizing that being in a metropole makes you think that you understand what culturally is vital in the world where actually we aren't in the center of the world you know musically or socially and there are cultures that are formulating you know real I keep using the word vital but it's just the for me, the, the kind of most appropriate term a real vital relations between music and, and living. One of, I guess, the most different aspects of being around musicians in South Africa when I was there and to to England is just the conversations were different. There was a lot more talk about music and healing and music and spirituality, what it meant to be a musician outside of just the commercial exchange of I play sound for you and you pay me money. You know, like what it means to actually have a role in the society as a musician that is that is vital, that is necessary for people to actually live in a way that is, well, sustainable spiritually, and also, you know, just kind of healthy and just joyful.
0: Tell me more about this. How does music heal?
1: Yeah, it depends how deep you want to go. If you consider that we are on a core level comprised of vibrating molecules just as human beings like you know when you kind of go down to an atomic level we are vibrating molecules and actually what separates us from specific individual bodies of matter from our surroundings when you look at it from an atomic level isn't much you know when you kind of consider like down to the kind of tiniest point like kind of core of our bodies vibrating down 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 to like the smallest denomination that you can get when you think about how that relates to the external then there's kind of not a lot separating us and especially when you consider things like you know that we can't see with our eyes you know in terms of energy in terms of the vibrational kind of energy forces that go out of us and the main thing about what music is music is vibrational force being propelled outwards using whatever means so we have the ability as musicians for altering the vibrations of the people in our vicinities and it sounds just from the, the the conversations that i've had that in many cultures especially in africa that there's an acknowledgement of this fact that you alter the vibrational capacities of the people around us with music is a healing force and if you understand how to do it and actually when it's needed and what specifically is needed then you can just do a lot for your community you know, as one of the ways of healing me.
0: So people talk about your music as transcendent. I find it transcendent. It sounds like transcendence is an actual intention. Is that right?
1: Yeah, but I mean, not to necessarily make the audience transcend, but to make myself transcend. Well, <laughs> and what the does that, is... What
0: does that mean then for you? What are you transcending?
1: Well, like, if you take away the word transcend for a second, what I'm trying to do is to shift my focus my orientation like see, my focus of mental vision not from what is around me but to the sound of a collective enterprise so when I'm in my most kind of profound deep musical experiences that to the external listener would be described as transcendence. It's when I'm not thinking about the technicality of what I'm playing. I'm not thinking about the audience in front of me or the situation that I'm in. All I am involved in is the sound and how my contribution to that sound creates something that's greater than myself, that's that's more immersive than myself. And that is, for me, one of the greatest experiences that one can have. And it doesn't require technical prowess. It just requires you to be a part of a communal endeavour, you know, of music making. Even if you're playing a cowbell on the one, on the on the first beat of every bar, it's still, it's the same thing. You're embarking on a collective experience. And for me, that transcendence is essentially the movement from the individual state to the collective state. You know, yeah, that's probably yeah, what it means in its most basic form, when it's not about what I am feeling on an individual level it's not about oh is my monitor at the right level or am I playing the right notes or how does my part fit in it's just about everything you know like well you have to start from those points that's the thing you have to start from an individual technical level and then as you go through that I find that you can get to a point where the collectivity of the endeavor just supersedes everything it just like it, it rolls over all kind of individual concerns and then becomes just one collective form of music making, and that's when the real powerful stuff happens, you know. And for me, it doesn't stop at the stage, which is why the reason why streaming concerts are, by definition, going to be lacking in some kind of spiritual power, because that communalism then flows into the audience, who respond to it with their bodies, and then that response feeds back to us, and then we get more energy. And then we give back. So then there's this kind of exchange of energy and musicality. you know. And that for me is that is the transcendence.
0: Why is technique part of that? Why is like, why not punk? You know, like if, like if yeah. it's really just about the individual to the collective, what is all of the rest of it that you're bringing about? Well, it depends what you call technique,
1: you know, and that's the thing. Sometimes we see technique within the prism of what the classical mentality not necessarily classical music, but the classical mentality would want us to see technique as. Whereas there is a technique to playing punk. Like if you spend enough time on your instrument, then you have a technique of playing it. You know, whether it's an orthodox technique or an unorthodox technique, there's still a technique. For me, technique is just a way of actually being able to sustainably do something. So for instance, if I play my saxophone with what I would consider to be the wrong technique, It means that when I'm about to go to that point of transcendence and going into the communal space, then there might be just elements that bring me back into the individual space. For instance, if my lip starts hurting because I'm actually not blowing from my diaphragm and I'm blowing on a surface level, or if my fingers, are uh, kind of too flat as opposed to curved it might mean that when I oh, my risk is at a, a wrong angle it mean that it might mean that when I start actually really trying to concentrate and go in to the sound that a physical limitation brings me back into the individual so for me that's really what technique is about is about being able to sustainably contribute to that communal endeavor and the same thing with tunes All the other stuff is about making tunes, having a set. It's just so that there can be a steady flow. The communal space is a space that you arrive at after journeying for a while. And this is, for me, what our skill is as musicians, being able to structure that departure and Mm -hmm. journey and then bring everyone back safely, you know, because it's not just like, boom, here is transcendence. You know, it's not like you press a button and you just get transcendence. It's about creating that environment where yourself and the audience is able to travel to that point where hopefully
0: you get to it. Go on, describe it to me. What's the moment? What happens in that liminal zone? This is the thing is like, I think that you shouldn't be
1: trying to describe it because it's like to describe it, especially within English language, which really is from what i know obviously i only speak english so i i can't say specifically that we don't have the right capacities for it but just they are things that i don't have the words for you know like they, they are situations musically that when i've talked to people in south africa for instance they'll talk and then they'll just say sorry i just need to speak zulu right now they'll talk to everyone else and they were like you get what we mean and then they might refer to a kind of a type of moment and i'll go i get what you mean but there just isn't a word for it i think that sometimes when you try to impose legibility on the spiritual it devalues it you know so i i don't want to go too far into actually what that space is because there's just something about it that just becomes profane if you try to just strip it away to actually what it is it's a mysterious space and it's not a space that's replicated it flies in the face of actually what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be workers, maybe cultural workers, but we're supposed to be people that have a commodity and our commodity, you know, shade the way that the media is portraying me. My commodity is supposed to be that guy that brings transcendence, but it's not that. It's that, you know, there might be, if you're lucky, it might be that, but I, I just play my music and hopefully it gets to that stage, but it may be not. And no one will know. And the great thing is that the set has good music, so it might be that we don't have that state, that state where we actually move away from the limitations of the individual, but you'll still have a great time musically, you know? You'll still be something of, of value. But yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. I probably could break it down in a very intellectual way, but I just feel like it's, it's not going to be a greater value if that type of experience is broken down because it's about a feeling. And the question is, is it worth depicting feelings in words? Not is it worth it, it might be worth it, but what is the worth of it? Because it's not going to make the listener have that feeling any greater. (laughs) You know, it's not going to make you experience the transcendence, the feeling of transcendence any clearer. And it might actually make you more self-aware in that state, which will be something that takes you away from the state, (laughs) ultimately.
0: I feel like you are a big reader as well as a great listener, right? Like, uh, Yeah. I mean, let's talk about influences. I mean, who are your readers, musicians? You've told us who your queens are, who are your prophets. You know, for me, the head
1: would be Marimba Ani, because for me, you know, her book, Urugu, is foundational. It's the book that actually <laughs> explains a lot of stuff that people have problems explaining in British society about the root of the problem. I think I don't want to go into it in any more detail because it's incredibly complicated. But yeah, so I'm Annie, um, I read a lot of, like say, Amos Wilson, Chancellor Williams, a bits of Stuart Hall, some of my reading. Then kind of stuff about kind of traditional African ontology. So uh, recently I've been reading a book on the sand people, their kind of beliefs in the way that they structure their worldview. Yeah, it's mentoring. I read all the time, so it's, it's, yeah. These are the books that are sticking out to me just in my head right now.
0: Who's been your kind of guide musically?
1: Musically? Well, I mean, all the greats you probably think are great. You know, it's so like Don Coltrane, Charlie Parker. In terms of on the jazz, the music that we call as jazz on that level. But then people like Don Byron, for instance, he's an American clarinet player. He's very, very eclectic. He's one of the first people, but actually firstly showed me that the clarinet can be used in a way that's outside of you know what I'd been shown before in a really eclectic way and in terms of music a lot of the influence is asymmetrical so it's like it might be that I listen to a Bjork record so for instance Vespertine and I understand something about the, the power of sensitivity and I know that for instance in making that record one of the things that she was trying to do was capture very small sounds for instance, the sound of a kind of flower blossoming, you know, let's use that as a metaphor, and then boost it up to be a real big sound. So it has real distorted image of that kind of relational values. And I really like that, you know, not necessarily in terms of the idea it, but in terms of the feeling of the record, it's a real feeling of a exaggerated or a kind of grand intimacy, a real kind of expansive intimacy. So for instance, that has influenced me as much as any specific jazz, in terms of trying to actually get a real, just expansive, emotional palette in my music. People like Jimi Hendrix, Fela Yeah, just so much music. I don't know. It's like, probably years ago, I would have been able to give more clear-cut answers to like who my main influences are. But just as the years go by, what I find is that you can be influenced by anything. Even some music that you don't like, you can actually get... Clear ideas of how you want to go forward, you know, by listening to music that you think isn't necessarily the greatest music, and then that might actually influence you more than music that you think is amazing.
0: So, other thing I wanted to ask you about was the latest Sons of Kemet album, Black to the Future. I'm kind of interested. Practically, I, I kind of understand that you like recorded it in December 2019. So, I was curious to know, you know, what happened, like what was lockdown like for you? Were you working on the album, or was it shelved until things eased up a bit?
1: No, we were, I was just working on it all the way through lockdown. And actually lockdown was great in that sense, in that we recorded it, actually recorded it, we started in May 2019 and did another session in September. And normally what would have happened is I would have been on tour and just given the recordings to the producer, Dylan Harris, and we would have mobilely, I would have given him feedback as while on the road, and he would have gotten down to kind of editing it and, and stuff. But because I had so much time, it meant that actually... I could listen and listen to what we'd recorded. How we did the recordings was we only did one or two takes for any given track, but we recorded it for really long times. So any given track, even if it's like a three to five minute track, we might record it for 20 to 30 minutes. Just keep doing it around and around, like keep playing the melodies, keep doing the solo, you know. And the reason we did that was to get to that point where it alleviates that individual tension, because there's always a tension when the red light goes on. And it's like, okay, now is the time to get that historical document. Whereas if you know that when the the kind of reels are rolling, that's not it. That's not the point that matters. You're going to be playing it again and again and again. And at some point in the future, someone else is going to take it and find the the kind of good bits. But it meant that actually during lockdown, I was able to listen and listen to all the stuff we've got and then kind of carve a narrative from all the information that we had recorded into an album. So yeah, that was really what the lockdown was for me. It was really kind of forming the album together.
0: When you talk about a narrative, are you talking about like the discursive narrative that runs through it or are you talking about music as well? Like what... the, the musical,
1: the musical narrative, you know, firstly, but for me it, it all becomes the same thing. It all it all molds into the same pot. Like the musical narrative is the discursive narrative.
0: What was the thing that emerged for this process of really being able to listen more deeply and more intensely over through 2020?
1: Well, what this emerged was just a clear idea
0: of, of what it should be,
1: what that kind of arc was. And the arc in terms of the arc from the beginning to the end of the album and the arc within each individual piece. Because if, you know, if you'd heard what the tunes were before that process started, it was very informed. It's a kind of a bunch of musical information that then it's like it whittled and whittled down into a specific, more kind of coherent form.
0: This thing of like creating the future through music, it sounds like that was already there as a kind of objective. Did that emerge through that process?
1: What do you mean by creating the future through music?
0: It's a future oriented album, right? And we started off at the beginning talking about the kind of refrain in Sons of Kemet about not taking the country back, but taking it forward. It seems to me that that futurism pervades what you do. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, because that's the thing like
1: the one thing that we are certain of is that we are going into the future. That's just a given of, of our life as human beings. Like we go forward, we go forward into the future, but then what that means past that acknowledgement is then where different cultural values or different cultural ways of seeing cosmologies comes into play because if you think that the future is something that's linear that is just a kind of disconnect from the past you start from an unevolved state and you just go forward into a distant future that's unknown then that's one specific way of looking at it if you're looking at in a cyclical way where you go forward into a future that's inexplicably linked to the past and actually repeats the past, but in different manifestations and forms. Then that's another, I guess, African form of seeing a relation to the future. And actually, the album as a whole is is trying to actually suggest that we need to understand these African ways of considering the future and considering a cyclical relationship to
0: it. Amazing, Shabaka. I've just really, really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks, thanks so much for your time. And hi, oh, hope it's a conversation to be continued.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Roman Centre, find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism dash racialisation
0: or follow us on Twitter at ucl underscore sprc.